Do you ever just do that? I mean, you need to think about the Lord and what he's done for you. And if you cannot think of something, um, there's something wrong. There is really something wrong, and it's easy to forget. We can get so bogged down by the things we are fighting in life, and I get it, man. There are going to be battles as long as we are here in these bodies on this earth. We're going to have, there's going to be difficult times. Jesus promised it, all right? And we can get so bogged down fighting even the good fight of faith that we can lose sight of just how good God has been to us, how good he was just for saving us. Uh, it's easier, I think, for people who came out of a really rough situation uh, where they can point and say, at this point, my life just literally turned around. But he has saved, he paid the same price for every single one of us. And you realize what that means to us, what we have to look forward to here and now and uh, in eternity. Wow, he really is worthy of our praise. And it does kind of make you want to shout every now and then, doesn't it? Well, praise the Lord. Uh, we are kind of getting back on track today. We, we, we uh, had a few weeks off for uh, Easter, uh, kind of going different directions. Uh, but we are still working our way through the Bible, which we started when? Is that 2015? Is that right? So we do 15, 16, and 17. Are we three years into this project already? Is that right? I think it is. Uh, wow. And, uh, guess what today is? Anybody want to guess? Huh? Yeah, we're going to do a review. Woohoo! Some of y'all like reviews, you've told me. And, uh, so this is for you. Everybody else? You don't like it, you can eat eggs out tea. That's my Pastor Hagen imitation. It's not very good. But, uh, well, uh, let, me, let me do a quick review, and then I'm going to say something about how we're going to be handling uh, the next part of the Bible, all right? Here's what happened. Ready? Here's what happened. God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. Uh, he created life. He created man. And if you want to know when that was, go back and get the first recording from somewhere in January 2015. Uh, because I call that the undateable past. We, I've been trying to throw some dates out here every now and then just to kind of give you an idea of when in history these things happen. And the uh, people who are absolutely firm on the, uh, uh, as young earth creationists will say, this happened 6,000 years ago. I respect the young earth creationist view. I, uh, I more or less embrace it. I'm just not dogmatic about it. And if you want to know why I'm not, Go back and get that first message. Don't be offended by that. I promise if you listen to the message, you will at least see why I don't put a date on that. I call the creation of the universe the undateable past. All right? Uh, I believe the creation of man can be dated to about 6,000 years ago, somewhere between maybe 6,000 and 10,000. And if you want to know why there's a gap there, go back and get those first messages. All right? Anyway, uh, everything was good. God created man, and he created man for a relationship with himself, not because God needed anything. He created man because God is good, and God is, God is love, and he's not willing to withhold anything he has the power to give. He created us for our sake, so that we could enjoy him. And we did, for about a chapter. And then Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 records the fall of man. It is absolutely crucial to understand that what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is part of the fundamental understanding of the Bible. This isn't just something that happened and then we move on. It changed everything. When mankind sinned, all right, he gave up his position as basically uh, the uh, God's agent on, he's still God still works through mankind, but he gave man dominion over the whole earth and everything on it. So this is yours. Go forth, fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He wanted man to just to fill up the earth with, uh, with himself and to have lordship over the earth under God, of course. And when man fell, when, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what they did was basically yield that authority to Satan, all right, to the tempter. 
and introduced sin into the world. And the world has been, the world has been in a fallen state ever since. Everything wrong with the world can be traced back to Genesis chapter 3. And it polluted us. It changed us. I believe that uh, sin has absolutely um, sort of uh, cumulatively polluted mankind. It's, it's, it's in our genes and the gene pool has become polluted by sin. And so we see problem after problem uh, being manifest down through the generations. And in fact, uh, we see the proliferation of sin was so rapid that God had to flood the earth to cleanse it uh, because it, mankind was destroying himself so quickly. But before that, what we have in the garden is what we call the proto-evangelium, where, where God, when he addresses Adam, look, because you sinned, you're going you're gonna, to uh, eat bread by the sweat of your brow. You're going to have to fight thorns and thistles. The ground isn't going to yield its fruit to you easily. Eve, because of your sin, uh, you're, you're going to uh, uh, bear children in pain. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he'll lord it over you. And then to the serpent... He said, you know, on your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and there will be enmity. There will be a state of war between you and the seed of the woman. And he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a direct reference to what Jesus did at the cross. God himself prophesied in the garden, here's how this is going to turn out. There's going to be a state of enmity between you and mankind. And in the end, it's going to be the seed of the woman that crushes your head. And what we see from Genesis 3 forward is the outworking of that plan. All right? We have, I still, I I, I love to think about it, but I have no... No, uh, nothing like a theory of what life is going to be like in eternity. I know it's going to be wonderful. I know there's going to be, we can't even imagine what it's going to be like to live in the manifest presence of God. But Adam and Eve did. And I can't imagine what earth would have looked like today had they never sinned. Now, it didn't take God by surprise. He's all-knowing. He knew what was going to happen. He made provision before the foundation of the earth for our deliverance. But it was mankind's choice that got us into this mess. All right, But I say all that to say the Bible doesn't show us much about what God's original plan for mankind looked like because we got off track so early that most of the Bible is about God fixing that, fixing that problem in Genesis chapter 3. So what we have, we have the flood, of course, and Noah. I believe that's something that really did happen. Noah was a real person. The ark was a real thing. And, uh, the, uh, and, and population started all over with Noah and his family. After the floodwaters receded, the next thing you see is the Tower of Babel, all of mankind gathering in the plains of Shinar and deciding that they're going to build a tower that demonstrates uh, their mastery over even God himself. And what God had told Noah when they got out of the ark was exactly what he told Adam and Eve, fill the earth. They didn't fill the earth because they didn't leave. They didn't spread out. And so God scattered their languages at Babel and they gathered into, into language groups and then settled in different places. God simply didn't do that just to punish them. He did it so that they would spread out and settle different parts of the earth like he wanted them to. And the next big thing, of course, still in Genesis, is the call of Abraham. Call of Abram at the time out of Ur of the, of the Chaldeans. And he, uh, we don't know a lot about his past. You know, it gives us his bloodline, gives us who he was related to. Uh, but, uh, you know, paganism was still rampant. We don't know a lot about what uh, Abraham knew or how he worshipped until God called him and spoke to him and said, get out of the place you're living, leave your relatives, leave your family, except for his, his wife, and go to a place that I will show you. He didn't even tell him where he was going. He said, leave, and I'll show you when you get there. And, uh, and he did, and he, made, uh, he entered into covenant with Abraham, and he made him a promise that he would give him all the land that is the soles of his feet touched. He said, look, in, look at the stars, count them if you can. Look at the grains of sand on the beach. This is the way your descendants are going to be. I'm going to multiply your descendants. said this to an old man who didn't even have a kid yet. And said, I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. I will bless you and make you a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is another direct reference to the Messiah. 
because what Abraham doesn't know it, but he, but what he's saying is through your descendants, I'm going to bring the one who is going to fix all of this. This was God's plan for Abraham. Abraham, of course, and his uh, offspring were promised blessings in the meantime, simply for being a part of God's plan. And so then we have Isaac, the son of uh, Abraham and Sarah, and we have uh, Jacob and Esau born to Isaac. And uh, Jacob, even though he's the younger, becomes the, uh, the, the inheritor of the promise and the covenant. His son, uh, of his 12 sons, Joseph, is sold into slavery, winds up in Egypt, and through a, a, a series of events that is one of the best stories in the Bible in the later chapters of Genesis. I encourage you to read it. If it's been a while or if you're unfamiliar, Joseph actually goes from slavery actually then to, uh, uh, into prison and then is elevated very quickly to a position of uh, prime minister of Egypt. He is second only to Pharaoh because he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He sees that there's a famine coming uh, on the heels of seven really good years and takes over the grain storage operation, makes Egypt fabulously wealthy by managing the grain storage and Joseph's family comes to Egypt to buy grain, and they are saved from the famine, invited to live in Egypt. So 70, 70 people of Jacob's family move into Egypt during the famine, and they stay there. And they stay there for hundreds of years until they grow in, in population uh, that's such a size that the new pharaoh is nervous. He doesn't know or remember or appreciate the contributions that these offspring of Abraham, these offspring of Jacob, have made to the survival of his own country. All he knows is if these people decide to, they could probably take us over. There's so many of them. So they made their life hard. They enslaved them. They put them to, to work, hard labor, until they began to cry out. The Jews began to remember who they were, that they had a covenant with God, the God of the universe, and they cried out, and God raised up a deliverer, and his name was... You're listening. Good. Moses. And we have the story of the Exodus. This is about 1400 B.C. All right? And so Moses leads them out of Egypt. God leads them out of Egypt through Moses. And we have this extraordinary outpouring of miracles. The plagues and the signs and the wonders and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And the parting of the Red Sea. And then the drowning of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And, and then they, uh, they park there at Sinai. Uh, for uh, nine or ten months while God delivers to them through Moses the law. And this begins the age of the law. Heard an interesting question the other day. These are the kind of things that blesses me when you think about. We didn't get the law until Moses. So, for instance, when Cain killed Abel, was that sin? Since thou shalt not kill had not been handed down and wouldn't for hundreds of years. Was it sin? It absolutely was sin. And Cain knew it was sin. That's why he tried to hide when God said, hey, where's your your brother? I don't don't know. It's not my day to watch him. Uh, He tried to cover it up because he knew he'd done something wrong. All all the the law did was, was codify that which God had already written on the hearts of mankind. Right? He made it legal, made it official, spelled it out. Uh... And because, and then when the law was written, then the judge has something to go by when he convicts. All right? So the law is handed down, and uh, some riveting reading in Leviticus, if you want to get into the details of the law. And then they come to what, where, where Moses is leading them is back to the land that God had promised Abraham. They've been out of it for the better part of 400 years now. And, and they have seen God do all this work. And they get to the river. They're ready to cross and, and uh, take Jericho. They send spies into the land who come back and say, this land is unbelievably good. The produce is amazing. It is everything that God said it was. The only problem is we can't take it because there's giants that live there. And uh, God was furious, understandably, because this was a generation that had seen the power of God working in their midst for a solid year or more. And now they refuse to go into the land that God promised them. So God says, fine, don't go in. You'll die here in the desert and your kids will go in. So for 40 years, they wander around waiting for that generation to die off. Second generation does go into the land under the leadership of 
Joshua. And so Joshua oversees the, the, uh, the division of the land. He assigns portions of the land of promise to the different tribes. They go in, they fight, they take it little by little. And this was all part of God's plan to drive out the inhabitants of the land little by little so that when the Jews got there, everything was well-maintained. If he had driven all the inhabitants out and then little by little allowed them to trickle into the land that he'd given them, wild animals, weeds, all sorts of stuff would take over. He kept the enemy in their place just long enough to keep it maintained and then drove them out as uh, each of these tribes moved in to take their land. And as long as Joshua was alive, they prospered. They made a vow to Joshua, just like they had with Moses. Everything you said, we will do. What did Joshua say? Choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people are like, we will too. And they pretty much did until Joshua died. And then we get into this cycle where we see as long as there is a good, godly leader in their midst, Israel is more or less a good and godly nation. But in the absence of a good and godly leader, they quickly slide into, into idolatry. That, is, that becomes their national sin, where they ignore God. And if you want to see this predicted, in, I mean, there's no reading between the lines. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, you will read one of the greatest sermons ever. And it's Moses telling the people that this is exactly what is going to happen. You're, you're coming into a land that is good. I've prepared it for you. The land is a beautiful land. It flows with milk and honey. And you're going to move into houses you didn't have to build. And you're going to take over gardens and vineyards that you didn't have to plant. And everything's going to be good. Only don't forget the Lord your God because the day you forget the Lord your God is the day you start to lose these things. Judgment's going to come in. Enemies are going to come in and take over. But as long as you do, as long as you remember me, I'm going to keep you on top. Just don't forget who put you there. And sure enough, as soon as they get in there, as soon as the danger's passed, as soon as they move into this comfortable life, what do they do? They forget God. And when they would forget God, enemies would rise up. They would become stronger, and they would start harassing them, and then they'd start enslaving them, and then the people would say, what's wrong? Oh, yeah, we forgot God. God, we are sorry. Rescue us. And every time, God would say, okay, and he would raise up a deliverer, right? A Gideon, a Jephthah, a Deborah, a Samson. You know, there was a weird one. Samson didn't necessarily lead the people like the others did. He just went and killed everybody by himself. And, uh, but this cycle for 300 years... Of, uh, of, the, of the period of time we call the judges. These leaders that God raised up uh, are known as judges because they judged Israel. And they served as leaders even though they, weren't, they never occupied a throne. They weren't kings. They weren't official rulers. But as long as they were around, people looked to them for guidance. And this period lasted 300 years. And the cycle we see is one of sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. And as soon as they were delivered... They'd get comfortable, the leader would die, they'd sin again. And then the oppression would come in, and then they would repent, and God would raise up and deliver. And this went on the whole period of the judges. And then the people began to cry out for a king. And it's one of the saddest things because, uh, and we see this kind of again and again, God wanted Israel to be different. He planted them in the midst of the nations. When it says the nations, it basically means everybody else. He planted them in the midst of the nations specifically to be different. He wanted the nations to look at them and see the difference and see that because of this difference, they were a blessed people. God's plan was to what? To draw the nations to himself by blessing Israel. Israel never really got that. What Israel thought was, we're God's favorite, so we can just expect God's favor. Never mind everybody else. And so when they sinned and this oppression came in, they never really got it. All they understood was, oops, this is really messing up our lives. God's heart was, you are robbing the nations of a picture of me that I want them to see. I want you to be different. So really, think about how offensive this prayer is. When they, when they cry out to God or cried out to Samuel, uh, who was judging Israel at the time, give us a king because what? We want to be like the other nations. God, I don't want you to be like the other nations. But God's like, you know what? They want a king? I'll give them a king. So they get Saul. 
who started off as a good king. He was a humble guy, but once he became king, he decided what? It's good to be the king. I want to stay king. Suddenly being king became the most important thing in his life, and the second most important thing in his life was to make sure that his son became king when he was gone. And it be, he became uh, insanely protective of the throne, and, but he did things that displeased God. He offered sacrifices when he wasn't supposed to. He lied about, uh, n- uh, about destroying the things he was supposed to destroy. He kept back uh, the best animals when God told him to waste the whole town. Uh, and... Uh, just thought he knew better. Really, what he was guilty of was compromise. Now, he did. His rage got the best of him because God was raising up David to take Saul's place. Saul could see the writing on the wall and tried to kill David because he wanted his son Jonathan to be king. Uh, And so it kind of drove him nuts. But he loses, not only does he lose his life and the throne, but his His lineage loses the throne. And David becomes the second king of Israel and its greatest king in history. David will serve as the model of the righteous king for the rest, even to today, that David is the one they look at uh, as the, uh, the leader of Israel at the height of its power, wealth, and glory. And David, of course, Uh, authored uh, a good portion of the book of Psalms. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a warrior king. He was also a terrible sinner. The sin that he is noted for, his uh, affair with Bathsheba and then his murder of her husband to try to cover it up is worse than any individual sin Saul ever committed. But David's heart was always drawn to God when David was confronted with his sin. If Saul had been confronted with that sin, he would have absolutely killed the messenger just to try to keep it covered up. But when the prophet confronted David with his sin, he writes Psalm 51. He goes into this in full-on repentance mode, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. His heart, and that's, that's, how, that's how God chooses to remember David, to, to, to honor David with, this, with that title, a man after my own heart. This is who David was. And then, of course, David's son uh, Solomon didn't have to fight any battles because David had subdued all of his enemies. The, uh, uh, all he did was just collect more and more money, more and more stuff. He had ships going all around the world bringing him stuff, just of gold and silver and jewels and Peacocks and apes. That's what it says. You know, it's like, yeah, bring, bring, bring me monkeys. I'm the king. I can have a monkey if I want, want one. Uh, good to be the king. And uh, this, but we also see, well, it's important to also remember this. Stick with me. We're, we're, we're going to zip through a lot of the Old Testament here in just a second. But uh, at the end of Solomon's reign, his son Rehoboam, when he took over the throne, took some bad advice, and because of the bad advice he took, it caused a tax revolt, actually caused the country to divide into ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, the southern kingdom known as Judah, the northern kingdom known as Israel, their first king Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And now we have the story of two nations. We've got the northern tribes, the southern tribes, uh, the temple is still in the south in Jerusalem. Uh, the capital in the north is Samaria. And then we got the books of kings go back and forth. They tell us while so-and-so was king in Judah, so-and-so was king in, uh, in Israel. And it's kind of hard to keep straight. It keeps going back and forth. But we trace the lineage of these kings. There's still just one dynasty in the south. There are several dynasties in the north. Uh, every one, every king in the north was bad that was a bad king. Some were worse than others, but they were all bad kings. Of the 20 or 21 kings in the south, I think you had eight good ones uh, and some better than others, all right? But what kept happening was this same thing. When you had a bad king, the country strayed from God. And then when you have a good king who would work reform, God would extend his mercy, his grace, but he continued to send prophets into their midst who would tell them what? You can't keep doing this forever. You keep turning to idols, and you are going to lose this. You are going to go into captivity. Someone will carry you away. Judgment is going to come. And it happened first to Israel. They were the worst off, and so uh, six almost 700 B.C., uh, maybe 722 B.C., they are carried uh, away uh, by the Assyrians. The Assyrians come in, they take over the northern kingdom of Israel, 
100, 120 years later, the southern kingdom of, of uh, Judah falls to the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. And they are literally, many of them, carried captive into Babylon. Among those who were carried captive were Daniel and uh, the other three, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we have their story. Um, if you're wondering where, uh, let's see, where, we, where uh, the book of Ruth fits in, by the way, in the time of the judges. Chronicles is just a retelling of the same period of kings, uh, uh, but it just gives us from the southern kingdom's perspective. And as far as the books that go there now, what we, uh, we have the uh, captivity of Judah happening at the end of Chronicles. And then we have a story of their return. They're there for 70 years, and then the Persians take over. While they're in Babylon, uh, the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, takes, defeats Babylon, becomes the ranking power. And uh, dur- during the uh, rule of the Persians, that, or in the Medes and the Persians, that uh, the Jews are allowed to return to their land. All right, and the, so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell that story. Then we kind of get an interruption in terms of, of how our Bible's put together, and we have Job. Well, we, we have a section called the wisdom literature and poetry, and we have Job, and uh, we spent a couple weeks on Job, maybe a week on Job, uh, and determined that the key to understanding Job, because you can't look at Job and say, well, see, sometimes life just doesn't make sense. Sometimes God's just going to let the devil run all over us just so we can end up praising him, and, and we just can't question why. That's not the story of Job, all right? The key to understanding Job is its timing, all right? Job existed outside the covenant. He was more or less a contemporary of Abraham, but he wasn't part of the covenantal relationship with God. He did not have the understanding or the revelation or the promise that Abraham had. So you can't say, well, he did it to Job, he'll do it to me. We've got promises to stand on, all right? And it's also always important to remember that the only New Testament reference to Job is a reference to the end of Job, which is how God restored everything double. All right? So keep that in mind. And we've got Psalms, which is the hymn book of Israel. We've got Proverbs, a collection of wise sayings, uh, by, uh, mostly by Solomon, but not all. And then Ecclesiastes, which is more observations from, Saul, uh, from Solomon, mostly in a backslidden state. It's a very interesting book because this is Solomon after he has become somewhat dissolute. He's still very, very wise, but he's got all these wives, all these concubines, and he's got all this money, and he's just experimenting, trying to find new things that will stimulate him and excite him, and uh, he, he just determines that it's all worthless when God is not in the picture and decides that the conclusion of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments. And then we have the prophets. Right, we have Song of Solomon, which is uh, which is this celebration of the uh, conjugal relationship, frankly. And then we have uh, the prophets. All right, and it kind of goes back, and you can you can look if you've got a decent study Bible, it'll tell you when the prophet wrote, who was king, for instance, when this guy was preaching or writing. But the prophets, uh, it's not a continuation of the history. It's things that were preached and written. Before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile. And it's warnings from God, it's teachings, it's all the stuff that happened to Israel and to Judah. The prophets are telling us this is going to happen. If you don't change, this is going to happen. Do this or this is going to happen. And then finally, when we get to Jeremiah, who says, it's too late. No matter what you do, this is going to happen. You're going to go into captivity. Just go. God will bring you back. Just go. Go peacefully. But through all of this, all the, the prophetic writings, you know, while they're saying, look, this, don't be mystified that this is happening. Here's why it's happening to you. You never did keep your end of the bargain. When God made a covenant with you and said, if you do this, then I'll do that, you never did this. You never consistently did it. You're unable to. What God was showing them through the centuries was, see, Because of that sin nature, which you inherited from Adam, you are incapable of keeping my law to the degree that it needs and deserves to be kept. I'm going to fix it, but I'm not going to fix it by giving you an easier law. I'm not going to fix it any other way than by sending a Messiah. 
These deliverers that I've sent before, these good kings, these powerful judges, these warriors, they are just a shadow of the ultimate deliverer that I am going to send. He is known as the Messiah. When Messiah comes, and so Israel began to hope, especially as their fortunes uh, as a nation, uh, you know, they, they were able to move back into their, their hometown. They were able to come back to Jerusalem and inhabit an area that became known again as Judea, but they were always under the thumb of another power. All right, they were, they were allowed to live, they were allowed to worship and, and keep their culture, but it was always under, and at first, you know, under the Medes and the Persians, and a little bit later, the Greeks, and then later, the Romans. They were always under somebody else's supervision. And it's kind of, I think it's kind of illustrative of, of the freedom that we as people have. You know, we can live and breathe and work and, and entertain ourselves. We can make choices and do what we want, but we are under the power of sin. Before Jesus, I mean, if we are not saved, we are bound in sin. And uh, then a little over 2,000 years ago, these prophecies were fulfilled when a virgin gave birth to Jesus, the promised Messiah. And his ministry on earth lasted only three years, but it had an impact so great that it literally serves to this day as the dividing line of history. I mean, now I guess it's more common to hear people talk about uh, BCE, uh, right before Common Era, is that right? And, and, and CE, Current Era or Common Era? Is it before Current Era or before Common Era? Anyway, BC and AD used to mean what? <laughs> I mean, before Christ and Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. This is the dividing line of history. And just when you change the label, you're still, year zero is still Jesus, right? And uh, as we studied in recent weeks uh, leading up to Easter, there were Jews who were willing to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And one of the reasons they were was because the timing was right. If you look at the specific prophecies in the later chapters of Daniel, he gives you a timeline. And there were students and scholars who understood that timeline. And so they knew that it's about time for Messiah to show up. And they, they really wanted Messiah to show up because Rome was a pain. And they just knew that Messiah was going to come and rescue them from Rome. But he did not die to rescue them from Rome. He died to rescue them and us from sin. That was the other big hurdle that the Jews had, understanding that the Messiah that God was sending was not just the Jewish Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. There is a, so we, we have the Gospels, which is an account of his ministry, an account of his life, his trial, his execution, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He rose from the dead. And then we have, after the ascension, we have the book of Acts. And this is where we have camped out for a while. Uh, And and it's interesting, the book of Acts uh, records that in Thessalonica, they said that the followers of Jesus had turned the world upside down. But I think, apart from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because this this is very significant, when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. You know, the, 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 and, and you read about this in the book of John. It's this long, they have this long discussion. And they're like, Lord, we don't want you to go. And he's telling them, it really is better for you that I go away. Because when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And that's going to be better for you. And then tells them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses. Another discussion we were having the other day, was, you know, the Bible talks even in the New Testament before, before you know, before Jesus uh, was born, there, was, uh, uh, there were people who were filled with the Spirit. Well, wait, the Holy Spirit hadn't been given until after the ascension. How was, uh, you know, how was John the Baptist filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb? How did this happen? God is God. He's sovereign. The Holy Spirit could fill anybody, and he did. Old and New Testament, we'd see people filled with the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit had not been poured out on all flesh. All right? This was the great thing of Pentecost. After the ascension, the, the Jesus' followers, 120 of them, waiting, praying, doing exactly what Jesus said. Tarry here in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. And then you receive what? You receive power. 
And they did. The Holy Spirit was poured out and they began to speak in other tongues. And a crowd was drawn and Peter stood up and preached. Thousands of people getting saved just in the first few days of the church age. And this is the age we still live in. The age that began in Acts chapter 2. So we spent some time watching the growth of the church other than the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is absolutely the most important thing that happened in the book of Acts because it means we can be filled with the Spirit today. Other than that, probably the most amazing and significant thing that we see is Christianity growing beyond Judaism and being embraced and spreading rapidly among the non-Jewish or Gentile world. And this is where we see this, the, the most significant growth. And we have testimony after testimony of people, cities turning to Christ. Uh, sermon after sermon preached by Paul, all testifying of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. There were always some Jews who were persuaded, uh, but there were always many Jews who were offended, who would fight it, and they would attack Paul and his entourage. And when Paul turns to the Gentiles of the city, the Gentiles are converted. And again, it's not just that Jesus is the Messiah of Judaism. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And you may notice, again, we slowed down a bit when we got to Acts. And I've said before, here's where I go back to explaining where we're going to go now. I have kept saying along through this journey, which was originally, I think, predicted to last a year and a half to get through the Bible. I've said that there were things we could dwell on in a little more detail, but I want to keep it moving to give you a sense of the flow of history, right? To get a big picture. But really, you know what? In terms of the history the Bible covers, we're pretty much done. The only thing we haven't gotten to is the Revelation. Because now the letters we're going to read now were written during much of the time we already covered in Acts. So historically, we've covered almost all of it. And so there might be this sense, well, just give us a quick overview and let's get through this. Let's get it over with. And I'm thinking about that the other day and I thought, why? Let's hurry up and get through with the Bible so we can get on to... (laughs) What? We're never going to be through with the Bible. Get it? I'm always going to be preaching from the Bible. So what's our rush? We've got the overview. You understand how it all fits together, right? I'm not saying we're going to do a detailed verse-by-verse study of every book that's left. I'm saying we're going to slow down because that what we have now in the epistles, which is just another, it's a it's epistle is not an apostle's wife. An epistle is a letter that was written by an apostle, written by these people in the early church. Written to individuals, written to church leaders, uh, written to uh, to Christians in cities. And uh, they tell us how Christianity, they tell us about the outworking of all these truths and all these earlier events, how this stuff works in our day-to-day life. We see Paul's explanations of what Christianity means for Gentile converts and for all converts. Um, and when you look at Paul's letters, they are, uh, some of them emphasize certain doctrines or certain situations. You know, there's a lot of detail in letters like Corinthians where he's correcting some stuff. He spent a lot of time in Corinth. He knew a lot of the people. He knew a lot of the situations. And so there's some detailed stuff where he's addressing specific sins, specific individuals, right? Uh, and we'll get there. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll get there in a number of weeks anyway. Uh, Galatians, of course, is written largely to correct the idea that they have to get back under the law. Well, now that you're saved, you've got to get circumcised and you've got to follow the Jewish law. And Paul's like, no, that's not. That's we, We've been freed from the law. But Romans is the closest that Paul comes to laying out what we would call a systematic theology. Where in one letter he explains more, far more than in any other letter, what Christianity is. It's, it is Paul's magnum opus. Romans is what Martin, Martin Luther hung his theological coat on. Uh, Romans has been the root of revival after revival and renewal after renewal down through the ages. When a church would get dead, legalistic, uh, political, it was always somebody's discovery of the book of Romans or rediscovery of the book of Romans that brought life and renewal. Paul had not yet been to Rome when he wrote this letter. Uh, which was around 56 AD, 
All right, but Paul is on his third missionary journey, probably. He probably wrote the letter from Corinth, uh, and he had been a Christian for, his, for over 20 years at this point. All right, so this is a pretty mature treatment of Christianity. And it's going to be an exciting few weeks as we dive into it. There's some, there's some deep stuff in Romans. Some of Romans is not easy. Uh, and some of it, like you read through the first three chapters, you can start to panic and think, whoa, whoa, this seems like legalistic. And then you realize all he's doing is laying the groundwork uh, of our need for a savior. But I want to start, uh, I want to start Romans and end the review with this as I wrap up this message today. I really am almost done. In, uh, Paul starts his letter, you know, identifying himself, laying out maybe his, uh, his bona fides. And you can look at Romans chapter one. They certainly, the, in Rome, the, the Christians in Rome, uh, I'm, I'm sure they knew exactly who Paul was. But he's introducing himself anyway because, again, he hasn't been there. And uh, we'll just, let me just read the first verse here. Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. This is who he is. I'm an apostle and my whole job is to preach the good news. That's what the gospel means, Right? And then in verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's an interesting statement. That Paul's reading of the prophets is the promise of the good news. Now, you can read an awful lot of other stuff in the prophets. There's a lot of warning. There's a lot of bad news. But Paul sees the central message of the prophets, and he's including all the Old Testament writings, is the, is the promise of the good news, which is what? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't make any, when he's saying, look, the gospel, the good news was promised in the prophets. And the good news was Jesus And Jesus was demonstrated to be the Son of God by what? Not the miracles. When people want to point to the the miracle ministry of Jesus, many people who are what what we would call cessationists, they believe, well, the day of miracles has passed, God doesn't heal anymore, well, he can, but he generally doesn't, all these things. Jesus did those things because he needed to prove he was the Messiah. Not according to Paul. His miracle ministry was to show us what God was about, what he was like. Do you know why Jesus healed? Because he was showing us what God's attitude towards sickness is. And God's attitude towards sickness is still that. No, he was demonstrated to be the Messiah. To be the, he was demonstrated to be the Son of God by what? By his resurrection. Not by his miracles. It's by rising from the dead that he proved and demonstrated that he was exactly who God said he was, exactly who he said he was. Uh, And then he goes on to tell them, it's really nice, he gives them some nice compliments, tells the Romans that their faith is famous. He's heard about them and he can't wait to meet them. He wants to impart a spiritual gift to them. He wants to benefit by fellowshipping with them in their common faith. He knows it would be mutually uh, beneficial. And then in Romans chapter 1, and praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 15, says this. Uh, so, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now he goes on in the rest of this chapter to talk about just how bad things have gotten. And you read the things that he's writing And he is describing our world today. Things haven't changed much. We think they have. Same sins that plague our society were plaguing Paul's society. The only difference was Paul had the guts to call them sin. 
And we don't want to do that anymore. Well, we don't want to chase people away. We can't call this sin. We can't call that sin. The Bible calls it sin. Paul lays it out clearly. You read through this, you know exactly what he's talking about. We looked at this passage, the second half of the first chapter of Romans, we looked at in detail a couple Wednesdays ago. I advise you to check that out. But this first part, he's telling them, I've heard of your faith. Now he's writing Christians. This isn't a, this isn't a letter to, all, to everybody in Rome. It's, it's written to the Christians in Rome. He's telling them, I'm going to come see you. I'm finally going to get my chance. I've longed to. I want you to know I haven't been ignoring you. I've longed to, to, come, for, uh, longed to come see you for some time. One thing or another has kept me. Either the spirit of the Lord, uh, travel difficulties, or the fact that I'm spending so much time in prison. One thing or another has prevented me from coming to Rome. But I'm going to come see you, and I'm looking forward to it. Because i got something for you, and I know you got something for me. But I am ready to preach the gospel to you. Now, they're saved. But he's going to preach the gospel. There's more to the gospel than salvation. There's more good news. And what's he say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. I want you to stand up with me and mull that over. You tie in that statement with Genesis chapter 3. I want you to understand this, and I know most of you do. I just I never close a sermon out without giving you this opportunity. Regulars know that. I say that for the benefit of the guests. I'm not saying this just because you're here, and I don't know where some of you stand. But I want everybody to hear this. Everybody who was ever born needs salvation. Salvation, conversion, the born-again experience, whatever you want to call it, is not something that is for bad people. I guess it is, except you have to understand from God's perspective, we are all bad. Is that biblical? You better believe it's biblical. We'll read it in Romans. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous, not even one. Why? Because we inherited a sin nature from our first parents. That blood disease has been carried down through the ages. It has infected every one of us. Some, I agree, are more manifestly evil than others. But compared to the holiness of God and his standards, we all, the only way we can ever hope to be back in that right relationship, the relationship God created us for, the only hope we have of being in that relationship again is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. The bad news is... None of us can get there on our own. The good news is God made a way. The good slash bad news is he only made one way. That's bad news for the world. Because the world wants to tell you, oh, sure God exists. But he just has many faces and there are many ways to him. Don't criticize somebody because they choose a different path. But Jesus said, I am the, the way. The truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It is only the cross of Christ. Peter said in Acts, there is no other name given in heaven by which men must be saved. Only Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of that. The gospel is offensive to some. It seems unenlightened to some. It seems primitive. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. First to the Jew, then to the Greek, then to Scott Millis. I'm not ashamed of the power of God that saved me. And I'm preaching that power to you. How, last question I want to answer, how do I access that? If it's the power of God to salvation, how do I know it applies to me? It is your decision. Yours only. Going back to our baby dedication. None of you are saved because you were baptized as a baby. None of you are saved because you were raised in a church. None of you are saved because your parents are Christians. God has no grandchildren. If you are going to be saved, it is going to be because you personally recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. You recognize that the death he died on the cross, he died for your sin. And you simply cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am a sinner in need of salvation and I cannot save myself. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for giving your son to go to the cross, 
with my sin to pay my sin debt so that justice could be poured out on him and mercy on me. And then the hard part where you say, be the Lord of my life. We talked about freedom earlier too. It's an illusion. The freedom that God offers us, he offers us as Lord. He's freeing us from our current master, who is Satan, sin. And we are, we are doomed to an eternity separated from God unless we, we accept salvation on his terms. Like, why can't I exchange being a slave to the devil to being a slave to God? There's no better thing to be than a bondservant to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Not only that, it's better than that. He adopts us into his family. We don't just become servants of God. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Man, there are privileges there that go beyond. I mean, nothing better than heaven. Nothing matters more than heaven. But your privileges as a child of the King are in force here now today. It is a great life that I'm inviting you to share with us. I'm looking around a room full of people. I know most of you are saved. But again, I don't know. If you've never personally made that decision, I am begging you to make it today. And I'm going to ask you to do something bold. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing a song. When we start singing, if you want to make that decision, come up here. Make it publicly. You're going to have to make it publicly at, the, at some point. And again, I know most of you got saved. Can I, but I want everybody's eyes. I don't, don't want to do this heads bowed, nobody looking around. I want everybody looking around because I want you to see this. If you got saved publicly, if you got saved because you answered an altar call, people saw you get saved, raise your hand. See, that's almost everybody. This is not hard to do, but I get it. That first step can be hard. Maybe your heart's beating in your chest. I know I need salvation, but no way I'm going to walk down there. Yeah, walk down here. It's going to be part of my prayer that God will enable you to do that. In fact, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the letters that you've preserved and the instruction you've given us and the life that you offer us through the Holy Spirit, through your revealed word. And I pray now, Lord God, if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, does not know Jesus as Lord, has never received that free gift of eternal life, that they would come to know you today. Move on them as only you can. Convict of sin and convince them of your love for them, Lord, and grant them the wisdom, the humility, and the boldness to come and receive that free gift now. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. We'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org.